Please take a seat. And let's pray together. Father, we do pray that as we come to your holy word now, that we would receive the truths of these verses with meekness and live by your words, holy precepts. Most of all, we pray, Father, that as we consider these words describing to us what our Lord Jesus went through, that you would help us all to be filled with thankfulness for him and give him the praise for all that he has done for us. In his name, we ask these things. Amen. So if you could have your Bible open, please, at those verses we read earlier on in our service. It's Luke chapter 22, picking up at verse 54, and we're looking right the way through to um, chapter 23, verse 12, this evening. And we're coming back to Luke's gospel once again. We've had a couple of weeks off, but let's just briefly remind ourselves of what is going on in the context of Luke's gospel. In the preceding verses, uh, Jesus, remember, has been praying to his father in the Garden of Gethsemane. And amidst that time of prayer with his disciples, uh, into the garden came uh, Judas Iscariot and a whole crowd of Jewish leaders and Jewish officials, uh, as well as that some Roman soldiers we know were present at that occasion as well. Judas, of course, had betrayed Jesus, and now Jesus is arrested before then being brought that evening uh, straight to the house of the high priest. And that's where we pick things up uh, this evening. Uh, We, first of all, go to the courtyard of the high priest's house. And it is, of course, there that we get this first scene where Peter, the apostle, capitulated on these three different occasions to the questions that were asked him by those there. Of course, this shows, doesn't it, first of all, that Jesus is in control of the circumstances that are unfolding that evening. Even at this time, Jesus is still in control. Just as he had predicted back in chapter 22, verses 31 to 34, three times Peter denied even knowing Jesus. And after the third time, uh, the cock then crowed right on cue, as it were. And at that point, we're told the Lord uh, turned and looked towards Peter, looked at him knowingly, looked at him uh, compassionately. Uh, Peter realized that the words of the Lord Jesus had been fulfilled, and he went out and wept bitterly, realizing his abject failure in denying Jesus. And then notice that the, the scene changes very, very suddenly, doesn't it? It leaves Peter behind and puts the focus then very abruptly on Jesus. And Luke, you see, is, is getting us to notice that there is this stark contrast that takes place between Peter and Jesus, the way Peter failed and how Jesus was faithful how Peter was so weak in the face of that very mild interrogation. And then that is contrasted with how Jesus responded to much greater hostility and much greater questioning. 
I'd like us to spend the majority of our time focusing, therefore, on verses 63 onwards. Notice that just as Peter faced three questions in his very brief interrogation in the courtyard that evening, notice that in Luke's account, Jesus is also then questioned three times by different parties each time. We're meant to see that there is something of a comparison taking place here between the threefold questioning of Peter followed by the threefold questioning of Jesus. Firstly, Jesus is questioned by the Jewish council. Then, secondly, he's questioned by Pilate. And thirdly and finally, he is questioned by Herod. And I'd like us to notice that each of these three people or three groups of people who question Jesus uh, respond to him in a slightly different way. Now, they all reject him. Uh, They all reject him for sure, but they all respond to him in a slightly different way. Their rejection is not identical. So let's look at each of them in turn. And firstly, we'll see how the Jewish council or the Sanhedrin, to give them their proper name, responded to Jesus. And if we could try and sum up their response to Jesus in a single word, it would be uh, the word blasphemy. In fact, that's a word that Luke uses, isn't it, in this account. Verse 65, he writes, And they, that is those who were watching over Jesus, uh, those who had been uh, put in charge of him that night by the Jewish council, uh, blasphemed him. They said many other things against him, blaspheming him. And I'd like us to notice that there were three different ways in which the Jewish council and those working for them that night blasphemed. Jesus in these verses. First of all, by mocking him. Now Luke's account, as we'll see, is fairly abbreviated. There are numerous details and bits of the story that he misses out here as he moves quickly through the material. He only touches on what is necessary for his purposes. So for example, he doesn't mention the fact that on that very evening when Jesus had been arrested, Uh, immediately when he got to the high priest's house, he was questioned there. We don't have those details in Luke's gospel, but as Peter was being questioned in the courtyard by those around the fire with him, Jesus was being questioned at the same time as well. Uh, Luke goes past those events quickly and takes us to uh, the treatment instead that Jesus received overnight as he was held in custody. We can assume that these people, given that job by the Jewish council, uh, knew about that questioning that Jesus had already undergone the evening before. And they knew full well that when the morning came and the next hearing would take place, that the verdict was already, if you like, a fait accompli. And it's for that reason that they have no concerns during those hours of the night about mocking Jesus and beating him, even though... He's not yet officially been found guilty. They know it's as good as done. And so they treat him as such already. They mock him and beat him. And in particular, they mock him for the notion that he's a prophet. Uh, That Jesus was a prophet is something that had been acknowledged throughout his public ministry. Luke has told us that numerous times throughout this gospel so far. Remember at the end of the very first sermon 
that Jesus gave. He claimed that he was a prophet. He was preaching in Nazareth as he began his public ministry and the people got angry with him there and Jesus said in response to their anger, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. It's the end of his first sermon in his public ministry and he refers to himself there as a prophet. A little while later, he raised the widow's son and the crowds there echoed what Jesus had said about himself, calling himself a prophet. They then said, a great prophet has arisen amongst us. And the guards who were watching over Jesus that night pour scorn on this idea that Jesus is really a prophet. They blindfold him. And as they beat him, they, they keep asking him this question, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And the great irony is, of course, that speaking as a prophet, Jesus had prophesied that this is exactly how he would be treated. By treating him this way, they show that he is indeed a prophet because this is what he had prophesied. Back in chapter 18, Jesus said, everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. Luke spares us the details of what other abuse they hurled at Jesus that night in order to mock him. But simply he sums it up by saying they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. So the Jewish council blasphemed Jesus, first of all, uh, by mocking him. And then secondly, they blasphemed him by rejecting his claims. And we go then to the next morning, early the next morning. Uh, the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, then gathers together again. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders of the people. We can assume that they'd all been there the night before when Jesus had had that first hearing and they know that legally they weren't allowed to pass a sentence during the night time. And so that's why they gather again the next morning for a more official hearing. To go over the evidence again. And it's with the clear intention, of course, of having Jesus found guilty as soon as possible. And again, Luke's account is very abbreviated at this point. The other gospel writers tell us that first of all, some false witnesses were brought forward in order to speak against Jesus. That plan backfired because their testimonies failed to agree with one another. And so the council then puts Jesus on the spot by asking him straight out, if you are the Christ, tell us. Those false witnesses had failed. Uh, so could they get Jesus to condemn himself with his own words? Is he the Christ or not? What claims does he make for himself? And Jesus said in response, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. And in a matter of speaking, Jesus is saying effectively, no matter what I say, you will not believe me because of your prejudice. And if I say anything to ask you, you won't answer me those questions. Uh, Jesus is saying it's useless for him to enter into discussion with them because they've already made up their mind about him. This trial is really a sham. And yet nonetheless, Jesus makes his claims about himself clear in what he says next. He says, but from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand 
of the power of God. And in those words, Jesus is making it clear that he is indeed the one who fulfills the great prophecies of Daniel chapter 7 and Psalm 110 that we sang earlier on in our service. That is that he is the one who would receive, as Daniel 7 says, glory and a kingdom. One who would be given everlasting dominion so that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. One who would, in the words of Psalm 110, sit at the right hand of God the Father, ruling from there. William Hendrickson writes that with these words, Jesus is looking down history's lane. He sees the miracles of Calvary, the resurrection, the ascension, the coronation at the Father's right hand. He sees Pentecost, the glorious return on the clouds of heaven, the judgment day, all rolled into one, manifesting his power and glory. On the final day of judgment, he, even Jesus, will be the judge. And these very men, Caiaphas the high priest and his partners, will have to answer for the crime they are now committing. And as Jesus says these words, the council know full well what Jesus means. That yes, he is the Christ. And more than that, he is himself divine. And to make doubly sure of that, they ask him again, even more explicitly now, are you the son of God then? To which Jesus replies, you say that I am. In other words, yes, you've got it right. And this, you see, is the astonishing claim of Jesus, that he is more than just a prophet. He is a prophet, but he is much more than that. He is indeed God incarnate. He's the promised king. He's the Christ. He's the one who fulfills the Old Testament prophecies. He's the one with an eternal kingdom who will rule forever and ever. And with that, the council are therefore satisfied that they have all the evidence they want and need to condemn Jesus. They say to themselves, what further evidence do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. So they blaspheme Jesus by rejecting his claims to be the Christ, the Son of God. And yet they've got a problem now. And the problem is that they themselves don't have the authority to pass the death sentence. And that's what they want for Jesus. They want rid of him. And they need Rome's assistance to get the death sentence passed. And so the council then takes Jesus to Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea. And they want to convince, convince Pilate that Jesus is deserving of the death sentence. And here's the third way in which the Jewish council blasphemes Jesus. And that is by slandering him. They're very cunning in how they do this. Effectively, they alter the charges that they're making against Jesus. Did you notice that? In verses 66 to 71, uh, the Jewish council had questioned and accused and condemned Jesus along religious lines. That's... He was making false claims to be the fulfillment of prophecy and to be the Christ, the Son of God. And yet the Jewish council knows that the Roman governor is not going to be overly concerned about these religious debates about Old Testament prophecy and whether or not Jesus is the fulfillment of these things. And so when they get to Pilate, they alter the charges 
and if you like, they, they transpose them into a political form. And they say, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And it's obvious that none of this is true. It's slander. Regarding their claim that Jesus was trying to stop the Jews from paying taxes to Caesar, you remember that just a few days beforehand, they had asked Jesus this question straight out. And he said to them in that conversation, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. In other words, yes, pay your taxes to Caesar. And yet here they claim that Jesus was trying to stop the people from paying taxes to Caesar. And in terms of him, of him claiming to be the Christ, well, of course, yes, that is true. But notice how at the end of verse 2 in chapter 23, they put their own spin on what Christ means. They make it sound like it refers to an earthly political king. That's why they say that Jesus was saying that he is himself Christ a king. They add those words on to make it sound like he's a normal king, not just a Christ in a spiritual sense. And they knew full well that Jesus never wanted to be king in that sense. His kingdom is not of this world. And yet they cast him in these terms. They slander him. And in these three different ways, therefore, the Jewish council responded by blaspheming Jesus. They mocked him. They rejected his claims and then they slandered him. And it hardly needs saying, does it, that we still see people responding to Jesus in exactly this same way, don't we? That there are many in the world who are still mocking him, still rejecting his claims, still slandering him. So how will Pilate respond to Jesus when he questions him? Well, to start with, Pilate asks Jesus the question that had been effectively put in his mouth by the Jewish council. They had told him that Jesus was saying he's a king. And so Pilate just turned to Jesus and said, are you the king of the Jews? And in Luke's account, Jesus answers simply, you have said so. In other words, again, he's saying, yes, you've got it right. In John's account, we're given a lot more detail here in John's account, we're told that Jesus didn't just say that he was the king of the Jews. He also clarified what kind of king he was. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. You see, Jesus clarifies matters for Pilate, doesn't he? He corrects the things that the Jews had been saying about him. Yes, he is a king, but he's not a political revolutionary. He's not what the Jewish council were trying to imply he is. Rather, he is the king of a spiritual kingdom, a heavenly kingdom. He's not going to start a, a revolution against the Romans. And it's for that reason that Pilate, having that clarification clear, then turns to the Jewish council and says to them, I find no guilt in this man. Pilate, you see, sees straight through their slander. 
He figures out what they're trying to do. They're trying to manipulate him. They're trying to make him condemn Jesus to death. And Pilate, who has no time for the Jews, doesn't want to capitulate to what the Jewish council were trying to get him to do. Now, he doesn't care anything for Jesus either, but he knows that Jesus is innocent. And he doesn't want the Jewish council telling him what he ought to do. And then the Jews try and pile more pressure on Pilate. They try to back him into a corner. They have another go. Again, they try and make out that Jesus is some kind of political revolutionary who should really be executed by the Romans. And so they say to Pilate, Jesus stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. And when Pilate hears that, an idea comes to him at that moment. And you see, Galilee is way up in the north. It's outside of his jurisdiction. And if Jesus is from Galilee, and if some of his controversial teaching has been given in Galilee, Pilate thinks, well, maybe he can pass the book. Maybe he can get someone else to deal with this issue outside of his jurisdiction. And in particular, he can get Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch of Galilee, to deal with the situation instead. And so with this idea in mind, Pilate then asks the Jewish council, is this man, Jesus, a Galilean? And when he finds out that that is indeed the case, Pilate then immediately sent Jesus over to Herod for him to deal with. It just so happened that Herod was in Jerusalem, that very day, he was probably there for the Passover celebrations. And this just all seems so incredibly convenient for Pilate uh, that he could just sidestep having to come to any decision about what to do with Jesus. And therefore we see that Pilate's response to Jesus ultimately was one of cowardice. He knew deep down that Jesus was innocent. And yet he was too cowardly to have Jesus set free because of the pressure that the Jewish council was putting him under. And so when the opportunity arose, he just sidestepped the issue of having to make a decision about Jesus. In a sense, many people respond to Jesus in that way today, don't they? It's not that they've blasphemed Jesus in quite the same way that the Jewish council did. They haven't openly mocked Jesus. They haven't rejected his claims outright. They haven't slandered him. And deep down, they know that there is no good reason to reject Jesus. And yet they just sidestep the issue. Like Pilate, they respond by saying, well, it's not really for me to say who Jesus is. That's not my decision to make. It's not within my jurisdiction. This doesn't really apply to me. Let other people come to that conclusion for themselves. Who am I to say? And at heart, it is a cowardly response to try and sidestep Jesus like that. And all of this then means that Jesus is then swiftly taken to the third session of questioning that morning. And this time it is at the hands of Herod, the ruler of Galilee. Now, of course, there is a bit of a backstory here to Herod. It was this Herod's father, Herod the Great, 
who had ordered the massacre of the children around the time of the birth of Jesus in order to try and get rid of him then. And this Herod, Herod Antipas, had quite a background as well. We don't know when, but at some point previously, this Herod had visited his brother Philip. And whilst he was there, he fell in love with his brother's wife, Herodias. He took Herodias uh, to be his wife. He nicked her off his brother Philip. And for this sin, he was repeatedly rebuked by John the Baptist. And instead of repenting of that sin, Herod had John the Baptist thrown into prison. He didn't have him put to death because of the fact he was afraid of John, the Gospels tell us. He knew that John's rebukes were valid. His conscience was troubled as he heard what John had to say to him. And yet even whilst John was in prison, Herod still listened to what John had to say. He was greatly perplexed by it. There was something about what John was saying which confused him and intrigued him. In fact, the Gospels even tell us that Herod heard him gladly. He took some form of pleasure in hearing these things being preached to him. And yet still, he would not repent of his sin. He hardened his heart against what John had to say to him. And then, of course, at Herod's birthday celebration, things went disastrously wrong. Foolishly, he promised to give the daughter of Herodias whatever she wanted after he watched her dancing for all of his guests. And at Herodias' instruction, her daughter asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter, which she then got. And a bit later on, when the ministry of Jesus became prominent and his teaching and his miracles were gathering the attention of the crowds Herod heard of these things and he said this is John the Baptist risen from the dead and it shows us doesn't it that Herod was still perplexed by these things that John had said to him there was something about the preaching of John that he just couldn't get out of his head even now John was dead he felt the burden of his sin his conscience was troubled by what John had said to him and yet still he hardened his heart. He refused to repent. And with all of that background, you can then imagine how Herod responded when he heard that this man, Jesus, was going to be brought to him for questioning. Luke says, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him. And he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Luke tells us that Herod questioned Jesus at some length. Jesus made no answer. Notice this, that Jesus answered many of the questions that the Jewish council had fired at him. And he answered many of the questions that Pilate had asked him. But tellingly, he answered none of the questions that Herod asked him. Before Herod, Jesus remained silent, like a, a sheep before its shearers, as Isaiah puts it. And the reason that it was before Herod 
that Jesus remained silent. It would seem to be that Jesus knew, of course, that Herod had already been given ample opportunity to respond to God's word. All those conversations he'd had with John the Baptist, all those sermons of John the Baptist that he'd heard time after time before John was thrown into prison and after he was thrown into prison. And repeatedly, he had hardened his heart. He'd failed to repent. And yes, on one level, he was perplexed or intrigued by the preaching of John the Baptist. Yes, on one level, he heard him gladly. And yet, on another level, he refused to repent time after time. And then by the time he finally met Jesus himself face to face, his opportunity to hear the word of God and respond in repentance was at that moment withdrawn from him. And you see, in a sense, by refusing to answer Herod, Jesus is giving Herod over to the hardness of his heart. And again, it's a response we see in the world around us, isn't it? That a person can hear the word of God repeatedly throughout their lives. And on one level, perhaps it perplexes them. They're intrigued by these things. They're interested in hearing these things. Perhaps on one level, they hear it gladly, as Herod did. They're, they're happy to come along to church. They're happy to hear a sermon. And yet, at the deepest level, they know that the word of God is addressing them personally, calling out their sin, calling them to repentance, calling them to turn away from their sin and to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. And at the deepest level of their hearts, they refuse to do so. They harden their heart against the word of God and refuse to repent. And in time, sooner or later, if that continues, God gives them over to the hardness of their heart. And that is when they meet Jesus face to face, they no longer have the opportunity to hear the word of God and repent at that moment of their sin. And therefore, in the end, Herod aligns himself actually with the Jewish council, doesn't he? He ends up as bad as them. Uh, the trial, as it were, comes full circle, doesn't it? Uh, that just as Jesus had been mocked in that first hearing with the Jewish council, Herod then and his men begin mocking Jesus. Just as Jesus had been mocked for being a prophet, Herod mocks him for being a king. He dresses him up as a king in an act of ridicule. Uh, he sends him then back to Pilate to deal with. Luke shows us these different responses to Jesus in the midst of this threefold questioning that he underwent that day. The Jewish council blasphemed him by mocking him, rejecting his claims and slandering him. Pilate was cowardly trying to sidestep the issue of what to do about Jesus. Herod hardened his heart and refused to repent. And in showing us these three sinful responses to Jesus, it is as if Luke is saying to us, his readers, well, what are you going to do with Jesus yourself? Will you blaspheme him, mocking him and his claims? 
Will you be cowardly and, and try and sidestep him as if it's not really your place to say? Will you harden your heart to God's word and refuse to repent? Or will you accept the claims of Jesus that he is indeed the Christ? He is the Son of God. And he is now seated at the right hand of God as king over all. I wonder what will you do with Jesus? Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we see in this dark episode of the trial of Jesus these different and sinful responses to him. The responses of blasphemy and cowardice and hard-heartedness. And we know that these responses are so prevalent even today. In a sense, nothing has changed since then. Men and women still respond in these same ways. And so we pray that you would give us all hearts that respond to Jesus in the right way this evening. Help us to see that Jesus is God the Son incarnate. The one who came into this world to fulfill the ancient prophecies of your word. By suffering at the cross before being glorified. And who was then exalted to the throne of heaven as king over all things forevermore. Help us to trust him as our saviour. Help us to obey him as our king. Help us to worship him as our God. Because we ask it all in his precious name. Amen.